0: You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem.
1: This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for multi-channel networks and digital media companies, including Maker Studios, Fullscreen, Awesomeness TV, Studio 71, and more. The Paladin platform streamlines processes, increases efficiency, and grows revenue for media companies that represent more than 200,000 content creators in a collective... 15 billion monthly views visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo
2: you're listening to all things video we're your hosts luke wang and james creech and today's guest is jocelyn johnson the founder of VideoLink. jocelyn welcome to the show
1: hey guys thanks for having me
2: our pleasure thanks for being here so just to kind of kick it off how did you find your way to the online video space
1: oh by way of hollywood like so many people in this industry, right? I was doing PR for a number of traditional Hollywood companies. And whether they were studios or independent producers or their production companies or both or above the line, below the line talent, I was sort of dabbling in all of that. And then I segued over into digital in about 2008, started working with Machinima and i was working with funny or die and daily motion and i helped launch xbox independent video channel with scott nokus and kind of was around when felicia day had her season 2 financed by them and they were kind of te- xbox and they were kind of testing out their original stuff and so i came through to the video space by way of pr and through hollywood
2: So 2008, it was pretty early. Um, What kind of sparked your interest? Obviously, this is way ahead of the curve before, you know, even I would say most MCNs were kind of a big buzzword. Like what about the digital space made you decide to kind of jump into it, you know, both feet in?
1: I think I when I signed Machinima really was the Kickstarter for everything. And it was interesting because I Alan, who's a mentor of mine, and, and he's also an investor in Video Inc, really helped shape that whole MCN space And also we were working with CAA on a number of different projects that they were packaging. So I don't know if you guys remember, but around that time there were Rosario Dawson had a show called Gemini Division and kind of everybody was really excited about the video space on the studio side. It was very mirrored actually a lot of what we're seeing right now. But then the 2008 financial crisis hit and I think I've said this before in other interviews, but it just timing was wrong. For the industry, like bandwidth wasn't there, viewership behavior wasn't there, technology hadn't caught up yet, and all, and definitely monetization. I mean, if we're like how many years later now, eight years later, and we're still haven't figured out the monetization piece. So at that time, when the financial crisis hit, all of the studios and networks kind of tail between their legs and backed out. But it was a fun time right then. I mean, Brent Weinstein was doing sixty frames and you know, a lot of interesting projects were being done. So it was a fun kind of new area to be focused in.
0: And at one point you decided to go out on your own and launch JJPR. So what inspired that?
1: It was actually um, two meetings. I don't know if uh, the readers are familiar or the listeners are familiar with Peter Levin. Um, He had a company called Geek Chic Daily. He ended up merging with Nerdist and kind of helping Nerdist get the deal with Legendary and kind of seeing that whole thing through. But at the time he was looking for somebody for marketing. He connected me with someone who was funding his business. And that guy, Andy Russell, ultimately said to me like look you've got what it takes to go out on your own like you're never going to make any real business if you're gonna work for this woman who's in LA you know or just brought you out to New York like you got to go for it like if you're going to go for it you got to go for it I've spent an hour and a half with you interviewing him for this role and I can just tell like you're an entrepreneur you got to go just go do it for yourself three months after that I was sitting with Ashton Kutcher's publicist Kathleen Flaherty And she and I were talking about how we could maybe do some business together and blah, 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 similar type of conversation. And she said the same thing. She was like, look, like, I don't know why you're not just going for it. Just take the jump, go for it. And And how did you feel
0: during these conversations?
1: I mean, I was like 24. So I was kind of nervous about like, do I have the experience? Am I, you know, what can how can I build my client base? All of those types of things. I left that meeting at the Tribeca Grand down in New York, downtown New York and I remember like, I looked up at the sky and listeners obviously can't see, but I have my arms up in the sky. I like looked up at the sky and I was like, I can do this. <laughs> and I called my boyfriend and That's I was awesome. like, I just got out of the best meeting. I'm starting my own company. Like this whole thing. And then it just like went from there.
0: What an empowering moment. Yeah, yeah it was cool. Had you considered yourself or thought of yourself as an entrepreneur before those two meetings?
1: No, definitely not. Mm-mm. What changed? I think two people that I respected who were deep into their careers, kind of giving me the nudge, like pushing the birdie out of the nest a little bit. And then knowing that I had kind of helped build out this digital division and that I'd been sent to New York and I kind of had had this growth pattern in my career that I was like, I can do this. I just got to believe it. I My like favorite part about it is I had like less than one month's rent in my bank account. <laughs> I was kind of like, no looking back.
0: Yeah, like many great startup yeah. success stories. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us about those early days. What was it like? What's the hardest part?
1: Oh, man, this is going to do a throwback. We're at full screen right now. And one of the, my first clients was Damon Berger and Shira Lazar from What's Trending. I was stoked to to sign them. Like I had always followed Shira from the early days when she was kind of running around and interviewing all of the early video stars. I just like had massive respect for them and what they were doing and like loved them. And our first in-person meeting was in CBS when the tweet went out about Steve Jobs passing away that was false. And so I was like, gung-ho, like, oh, okay, <laughs> here's our strategy. This is what we're going to do. Like, I'm so excited. Da, da, da. And we're like barely getting in. We'd had, we'd been working together for a month. This was like our first like in-person like strategy. Like, this is what we're going to do for you. This is what I'm going to do for you and Pierre, And like immediate crisis pr out of that so that was an exhilarating but also like on your toes let's hit this shit moment you know
2: the plan you were creating was that pre-crisis or post so no pre that's pre like we
1: were like in the room the cbs producer comes in and goes uh Somebody just tweeted, da, 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 and then the whole thing unfolded. And sorry, guys, if I'm <laughs> revealing any extra details. We had sure on like a month ago. Yeah, there, so. we'll have
2: to ask her okay. about, yeah. about this story. we yeah, yeah. part two with her sometime.
1: Yeah, part two and ask her about that moment. So then it was like the like wildest, cool, fun 48 hours. I mean, not for them, obviously. like, But for me on the PR side, like, I was kind of like, this is where I get to really... Cut your teeth. Yeah, prove that I can do this and like show the chops. And I called up a few key reporters, one at um, AP and one at Entertainment Weekly. And they were all like lined up to do kind of our version, our side of the story. And I prepped Shira for that. And yeah, it was, it was like quite the way to start my PR business, but it was good.
2: I love the origin stories for those listeners who have been following along. We had Jonathan Scogmo on here maybe about a month ago too. And he was talking about basically running the Juken business out of his apartment he had like six interns in a one-bedroom studio you know and basically just having everyone steal napkins and forks from like chipotle or something like that just to kind of make things uh, make ends meet totally um, it's the hustle it's the hustle exactly
1: oh man i went through breaking bad four seasons in 72 hours because i was like crazy workaholic mode at that time i would like wake up put breaking bad on in the background and just like brrr, like on my computer like hustle mania you know yeah and I went through all four seasons Breaking Bad, seventy two hours. It's pretty embarrassing, That's actually.
0: Awesome. <laughs> so okay, so you are working with Shira and Damon at World Trending. What was next? Who were some of the other clients who signed as um, you signed? and of those relationships.
1: It really snowballed from there because, like, I was Shira was all of a sudden every, and not even just because of that, but like a little bit after that, she was kind of everywhere. I signed Dance on, and then. My big first work with On was announcing them as part of the Hundred Channels initiative. So I was like, "This is a big moment! Like, this is exciting! I I will have to! I'm so glad I'm involved with this." And then I signed Big Frame. They were actually the cloud, and they had just rebranded into Big Frame because of them funding. So I worked with Sarah and Steve very early days, all the way up until they're almost running out of cash and then getting acquired. And that was really, really cool. And then I started working with tubular, you know, indie music, style hall. Uh, I was trying to get awesomeness as business forever from Margaret. Yeah. I was just like working with everybody. Daily motion. God, I'm like, epo- no, I didn't work with epoxy. I'm like trying to think of all the early the, ones. But who just, did you
2: work with? That? Yeah. That's there were, there were a ton
1: did. of them that I was just like right into. Yeah. And that was when I started to, to notice that there was this massive opportunity for a trade publication. Because I had worked with the Hollywood trades before. I kind of knew how they moved the needle for the business and why they were important. I faced two problems. Like when I was a junior, we flipped the trades to learn the names. That was how I learned who like John Feltheimer was and like, you know, what agents were hot and kind of tracked all the deals and learned that. Portion. And in this part of the business, like any of my juniors, as I started to hire and scale my team, I had to be like, this is like what Mania TV is. And this is who Revision 3 was. And it's run by this guy, Jim Lauterbeck. And like, I kind of had a verbally oral history, everything. And it was just a pain point. I was like, I need somewhere that these guys can go to just drill in on on the names. And then the other part was, I thought that the business was being held back. It was like, this is always going to be the bastard stepchild if there's not a dedicated trade. So really like the purpose that I think people thought I went into it was like, I just want to have a place to get my clients free press. But actually, if you look like my clients actually weren't ever written about on Video Inc for the most part, but we, I hope we can track back to how we've helped move the industry in some capacity.
0: How'd you come up with the name Video Inc?
1: So another fun fact, Mike Shields at Adweek, he um, was supposed to be my co-founder. And we had just like gone back and forth. We were talking about inking deals. We were talking about like video industry. And so we thought, okay, like pen to paper, we're kind of taking it back to journalism and like hard hitting news. And so it was the video ink, you know, talking about inking deals and all of the business. And then his wife got pregnant with twins and he was like, can't go into startup. <laughs> that
0: changes the <laughs> equation. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so what has been your vision for video ink? How did that evolve over time?
1: I definitely just wanted to make sure that we replicated the business models that I had seen with the Hollywood trades. And I also employed what I like to call the bear tactic. It's basically when you're confronted with a bear, like what you're supposed to do is make yourself look as big as you possibly can, even though you're small. So like scare it away and sort of intimidation tactic. Does that work? That's what they say.
2: I wouldn't be the one to try that out because that seems utterly terrifying to try to t- to scare like a bear. scare a
1: bear, like ah, yeah. I'm big and scary, but I'm really a small human that you could eat in a second. But like, really, that's actually <laughs> what we're we were. Like, yeah. well, that's what we were. Like we just came out of the gates really strong. And it was like, people said to me like, oh my God, how many people do you have behind there? And I'm like, oh, two. And they're like, what? Like, it seems like you have a whole field of elves. Like, how do you do what you're doing? I don't know. We just bear tactic. Mm-hmm. It's like, make yourself look huge. So we came out of the gates like really quickly. We broke our first scoop within a week. Then we had the awesome, we pegged the awesomeness valuation and funding one month after that 30, the 33 million that they had from DreamWorks or 32. Then we moved into, you know, events and we moved into video activations. And I made the other big part that I looked at was like where our strategic partners were. So since I'd worked with like NAPI and MIP and all these companies on the communication side with my clients, I was like, I need to have media partnerships with every single one of these guys. So that was like, my other thing was to just make sure that they knew what our vision was and our mission and that we were going to be a tastemaker.
2: How are your thoughts on some of the other digital publications in the space Um, such as two filter, New media rocks. If you're allowed to say, is it competitive? Is it kind of all ships rise with a rising tide? Like, what's kind of um, the vibe there?
1: So, I definitely respect anybody who stays in the business as long as any of those guys have. I would say that the interesting part is that, and where I've really tried to be a differentiator and why I thought Video Inc was needed, is because constructive criticism is useful. Like you can't just blow a fan a fanfare horn for everybody and pat everybody on the back and celebrate everybody all the time because like there's a good side, there's a bad side, there's an ugly side. Like it all moves the needle. If somebody sucks on X, Y and Z series, or if somebody's internally at a company and they're known for doing you know sexually harassing their employees as a senior person or throwing a basketball at somebody, at a team outing, like those things need to be like, need to be surfaced. Like that's helpful for the rest of the people. Like that person might not get hired at a, as a senior person somewhere else and do the same thing as, you know, at another company or people might learn that certain comedy formats aren't performing or that certain other companies are actually, you know, f- falling apart. And why? Like it's a learning opportunity. It's, so I think from our, from my perspective, and what I definitely want, want to focus on more is being like the beacon of honesty.
2: I will say um, when I, I think I first started reading video ink in like late 2012. And I think uh, one of your writers, Sahil, was really covering, I think, machinima pretty hard. And uh, the stuff that he was writing was really resonating with me personally. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, because prior to that, it was really just two filter that I had could read um find information about. But I was like, okay, video ink feels like the deadline, two filters, Hollywood Reporter, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way you know, obviously both very informative. And if for someone like me at that time, it was just transitioning into the digital space. Like there's no quicker way to kind of get up to speed and ramp with the names, with the movers and shakers and all that kind of stuff to read those. But there was always the kind of, uh, like you said, like you mentioned that the more critical thinking and analysis that came with video ink than, than some of the yep. other ones.
1: Well, I think it's also interesting when you look at just some of the people side by side and if you are coming from a fan perspective and you're covering community, and you're a fan of the category, you write differently than if you're coming at it from maybe where I was coming from, where I had placed stories with the Hollywood trades that were of certain types and certain calibers and certain formats and structure. And I had seen us leak stories about certain things and I'd seen us back channel with Nikki Fink. And like, I kind of knew how the trades functioned and why. And I thought, that's what we need to be. Like, we need to be in that lane, not like, I don't come from a fan space. Like, I didn't come in being like, oh, my God, I just love YouTube and I want to, like, cover all of the cool stuff that's going on on YouTube. It was like, there is a business here and it's not being covered. And if there's a, if, like, Alan Debois and George Strumpelis and Sarah and all these guys know the deals, who cares? Because the money is on the outside. And like stupid deals get done and no one moves forward. And then guess what? All the big guys at the studios say, oh, look at our stupid little brother down there making all those cute little mistakes. Like, and it doesn't move the business. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope we're doing that. I hope I'm doing that.
0: Do you feel that with that mission outline that you've done a better job of that today than when you started? Do you feel that you're fulfilling that mission?
1: Every day is different. Yeah, almost.
0: And has it elevated the level of journalism or analysis in the space about those types of topics?
1: I think so. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah, I think there's been a lot more critical eye on it um, since we've emerged and something I've pushed every single one of my writers to do more, every single one of them. I'm sure if you talk to them, they'll say I'm so difficult, but it's because I'm a pusher and I like want people to do the hard work, surface the good story, surface the truth. Like that's the point of journalism. I remember a couple times, like, we would get calls from like YouTube PR, and they'd be like, Your headline is not nice. Can you change (laughs) your headline? I'm like, Is it factually incorrect? Well, no, but it should be nicer. Then I'm sorry, we're not going to change the headline. Like uh, you don't know what to tell you.
2: Sounds like it's getting people's attention. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's them doing their job and you doing your yeah, job, and then eventually there's some currency and you know yeah. you're a kind of not not physical currency, but like you know that other PR currency. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's important yeah. as well. And you recently teamed up with
0: Peter Chatty to create Digital Cabana, which is a weekly video podcast about the online video industry and Mm -hmm. news and updates. So for those who aren't familiar, it's a great show. Luke and I are fans and people should check it out. But what are you and Peter seeking to cover on Digital Cabana?
1: Well, the beauty of putting something in print versus us rapping about something on video or even what we're doing right now is on a podcast is that you can be a little bit more liberal in your opinions and your and your and the way you state things, a little bit more provocative in terms of like rumor milling, right?
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I think because it like comes out organically. It doesn't have to be like this full-on story. Like if I wanted to talk about like a murmur of something that I'd been hearing had been going down, you know, I can say that in two sentences and it adds value to people who maybe are in the industry – but I wouldn't want to write a whole story on that. It might not stand out that way. So I think Peter and I just want to have fun doing that. We want to like have real conversation about what's going on in the business. Kind of, He sees a lot behind the scenes, and I see a lot behind the scenes. And some of that we neither one of us can really report or write about, but we can kind of rap intelligently about what we're seeing without having to say it's iHeartMedia who's doing this or
0: it's full screen who's doing that. So what are some of the things that are top of mind this month in September?
1: In September, well, everybody's out at Ad Week right now. So that's kind of interesting to see just how much the ad space is continuing to be important to all of the digital companies, even though they're all trying to go OTT. I don't know. It seems a little contradictory trying to get out away from the ad model and then kind of going and actively playing on their playground. I still think that built the built of sold model's tricky for the industry. I don't know. I mean, I have a few core topics that I'm always kind of badgering on, which is measurement and rights and IP. I kind of consistently think those are big problems.
0: How do we even think about solving those, right? Measurement's a huge challenge when you think about even looking at traditional media and the way that people measure it. It's still inaccurate after decades. So digital brings performance and a much better approach to looking at that, but still there's no common currency between platforms, between even how you're promoting content. How do you think we can get better about that?
1: I think that it ultimately is going to take the key constituents on the digital side to just sync up and agree, to be on the same page, to establish what they think maybe for six months is going to be an appropriate taxonomy and test that out. And then thirdly, make sure that they are all in agreement about transparency. There are some companies that don't like it when I point out how they perform at on the box office or in their viewership or in reviews or whatever it might be. And I ultimately think that that constructive criticism or surfacing that is helpful for people. It's like there's a reality TV industry for a reason. You know what I mean? Like that was because the ratings and the trades and kind of the hype around certain early reality formats took off. And so everybody replicates and that's how they build an entire business in a vertical. I think it's just educational information. But I think, um, the people, the publishers in the video space have a like performance anxiety. They all know that they're not really organically getting their numbers, arbitraging, botting. There was one point with one of my clients in the early days where they said to me like, Hey, we've got this big Kia campaign and like, we're not going to be able to fill the inventory. So. Full screen is gonna like backfill it for us, and then like we're gonna backfill like this other one for them like down the line, and like it's all, and I was I, like at the moment I was like like this is so wrong like these guys are competitors like why are they like siphoning out their viewer their like media out to each other and and like right then I was like okay like this is a potentially huge problem.
2: It does feel like there's um, a lot of like trading and bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean. Where, what do you mean
1: by trading in bullshit? So like what, I'm what gonna I mean it on is, you.
2: um, there there seems to be just like this. You can't see me, but I'm doing like the elbow nudge thing. Like, hey, like let's just kind of get this deal. Like, money's tra- money's trading hands. Everyone knows that the value may not necessarily be there, but for the traditional, it's like the the, the big four holding companies, right? They're so used to doing what they do against television, against newspaper, against the traditional media forms, And for me, at least, it seems like they want to keep things as simple as they can because they're not paid to shake up the model. And really, when it comes to the measurement model, it's like, as far as those key constituents, I feel like it's really those guys that if they were to say tomorrow, like, hey, we're only going to place our media buys, if you can show, you know, against Comscore, against Nielsen, whatever the Nielsen OCR, like all those metrics that are out there, tubular even. Like it's like, I'm only gonna measure against tubular uh, metric scores, whatever. But because they're still sucking me, I'm getting paid a lot of money to keep the train going on the tracks. And if I shake things up, I don't know how that's gonna affect my urine bonus. I'm gonna wait this out until I'm retired.
1: Totally. And then
2: once that generation moves on, that that currently like the people that are waiting to replace them, who are smarter about things, um, hopefully that'll be on them to sort of move the industry forward. But as long as like the key players at those companies, to me at least, um, control most of the budgets for most of the marketing spend, don't change the way that they operate, we're all kind of stuck behind that. Because at the end of the day, like Google, Facebook, they have a lot of leverage, but they still are trying to get those dollars from that the big poor.
1: Yeah. I also think like, what if all these kind of publishers like refinery and Jukin and full screen and maker, and I don't know, not even gunpowder and sky. I'm thinking of it like Josh, any of these guys like got together and said, okay, this is how we're going to sell. And this is how we're going to measure. And video Inc. every week is going to be the one that reports like how we're all doing based on these five points. And we're all just going to agree to it. And we're going to agree to it for six months. And if it changes in six months, it changes in six months. But, like, we're all going to agree to just, like, share that information. It doesn't even have to be video ink. It could be publicly on a Google Doc that, like, we're going to add a newsletter distribution <laughs> for. And then just from then on, it's like you can see how stuff performs. And I don't, I, I don't have that taxonomy. I'm not inside enough to know that. But I think those guys can could work it out together and say, okay, like, let's put our money where our mouth is.
0: There's a couple problems with that, though. One, that forum, that vehicle doesn't exist today, right? And people yeah. have attempted to put that together in the past and just hasn't fulfilled that need, yeah. even though there's been plenty of other drivers to help think that we need a a group like that to to make decisions. The other issue is that certain players would certainly benefit from that and others would not, right? There exists better margins and better sales opportunities when these information imbalances occur. Mm -hmm. So even if you look at the portfolio of MCMs, or if you look at digital publishers, some are going to perform well on certain metrics, right? I have the most Snapchat or Instagram reach, or I have the most score unique impressions, but how do you measure that, right? And who's got more mobile views, who has more engagement so they can sell what they're strong in, but they're not necessarily acknowledging if they're weak in things like viewability or targeting based on true audience engagement metrics or to an audience demographic that they're supposed to be hitting. It's all apples and oranges today, and that's what allows people to make the most money. So they're yeah. not incentivized to change right. it. Right.
1: I think that's like the ad, that's the ad model. That's one side of it. And I also think measurement is a problem on the programming side, mm-hmm. on like the, the scripted, unscripted, like long form, short form distribution for series format side. And I think that's a problem that we're going to see play out over the, in the ecosystem over the next year, because right now there's no intel into why Go 90 would renew something. Like I hear, I, I had this like tip, somebody's like, oh, like our, three of our shows have been renewed by Go90. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. So I go out to a few other companies. Hey, have you had shows renewed by Go90? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our shows are renewed too. We're on season two, season three, whatever. I'm like, great. Like, I'm going to go to Verizon and ask them about like what renewals they've done. I already know about these six renewals across these three companies. And they're like, we haven't done any renewals. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're the distributor. Like, what do you mean you haven't done any renewals? Like, oh, well, some of that is like in the contracts. It's like a little, you know, we've got like deals. It's kind of already baked in. So then I go back and I'm like, oh, so like, how does this work? There's like production company. There's these middlemen MCNs. And then there's this distributor. And the MCN is the one that's making the decision on the renewal. And so I was like, that's a little weird to me that like, how, what's the decision making factor for like that renewal? Like did it perf- did that show perform well inside the Go 90 ecosystem? Don't know. Did it perform well against the other formats that were similar to it in a similar time frame? Don't know. Like why is that are those four series being renewed by that company? Don't know.
2: Luke, any insight for us? I think that data isn't released because Metrics mean different things to different people, right? What's meaningful for Netflix is different. What's meaningful from Hulu, which is different. What's meaningful for go 90, which is different. What's meaningful from full screen. And I think when those numbers get publicly released, they get compared to each other, even though they might not necessarily be the best signal of, well, what's discussed for us. I don't want people to compare apples and oranges again. I've been there for like a month and a half. So I don't even have the full information myself. But if I were kind of, you know, the PR team for any of these companies, um, and and obviously Netflix being the biggest arbiter of we're not going to release any viewership numbers is because they know that as soon as they do, it's going to be compared to TV ratings. And, you know, it's like that's still Apple's oranges because it's streamed minutes versus concurrent viewership for a single show. You really can't compare the two. Because one is VOD and one is live,
0: but they also don't have to, right? And then says no viable competitor forcing no, them to exactly release viewership information. And two, if they. If they have that information, they have a lot of power when it comes to those renewals, mm-hmm. right? If they're in a negotiation, they know exactly how much to pay for exactly. Content. If they're going on to license or acquire new content, they know mm-hmm. exactly how much to pay for that. And the data and the models that they can build off of that, yep. you know, you can't replicate that to the extent that Netflix has been in the business long enough and has all the data to be able to do it. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's going back to the arbitrage play, it's like, I'm sure they have a system that says an Adam Sandler Western is worth this much money to us.
1: And- well, the reason Netflix is also shaking up the market is because they're doing global day and date releases in some cases, or they're picking up global distribution rights, which is really different than the old model and also why they don't have to ever, like, release those numbers. It's different when you look at kind of the older studio system where the whole reason for numbers being released was to add value to your IP, And if you have a certain value at the box office or a certain value to that IP in um, the television ratings, then you can actually back into what the value of season two is, value of season three, the value of season one, two, three, once they jump overseas and once they go into this market and that market and then to cable and then to DVD. And, like, there's this whole, like, keep milking the money as long as you can. Netflix, you don't have to worry about that. Like, I was talking with Jane Fleming at dinner and she's like, I don't care. She's like, I don't care. I had any of it. I was like, sorry, Jane. Um, Like I keep thinking like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be repeating that. She was like, I don't care. Cause like they're picking up the global rights. Like I don't have to worry about it after that. If they determine they renew it, then they're going to have to like pay for another season or another installment or whatever that looks like. And I don't have to worry about the numbers. I think that's different when you're looking at Go90 or you're looking at some of these other ones where they're consistently picking up and like redoing content and then, the new forms and the full screen. I keep calling it full screen. I think it's just because we're in our office again. Sorry, Ezra. Don't email me mad, but like it's an opportunity for them to go to the international markets and quantify their IP. And if they don't know how it's performing, how do they quantify that IP? It's like a a number out of a hat.
0: And I'm sure Go90 has the data, but I would, I would honestly be shocked if you were doing anything with it. If Go90 new enough to be able to make actionable business decisions off that today, it's probably not enough data, right? If you're going from season one to season two, you don't know how that's performing. You just don't have enough historical information on how one piece of content is performing versus another. And your audience size probably isn't big enough or sophisticated enough at this point to make those calls.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could go into that on the whole thing, but because mm-hmm. Luke is here, I'll, uh, I don't <laughs> want to put him on the it. spot because he's like go. new, new into the company. And it's, I didn't intend to do that. No, I no, actually no, forgot that you it's were newly over there. So
2: I mean, I it's, I'm the one who threw under the bus. Yeah, yeah, right, okay. right. I mean, there's right now, you know, there's full screen, there's go 90, yeah. there's vessel and there's only like a handful of yeah players. Well,
1: YouTube, Red, I mean, it falls into that
0: bucket as well. Um What do you think happens long-term as pod? There's so many people pursuing that dream. What's going to happen?
1: I think the obvious answer, like so many of them will fail. I was talking with somebody who left one of the subscription video companies, startup tech company that might be bought by Verizon and <laughs> wink, wink.
0: Which by the way, um, terrible move. Yeah, terrible move.
1: Uh, Aquahire so to rebuild the product. That's my prediction. Aquahire to rebuild the product from scratch or take take the existing tech and the infrastructure and turn that into Go90. And maybe take that ad unit and that magazine thing that Jason and those guys tried to get done at Hulu and couldn't and took to Vessel. And then maybe we'll take to Verizon. I don't know. know, I was kind of rapping about like, oh, what's going to happen with all these subscription businesses? And it's like the subscription business is just such a long tail game. Like you have to be willing to be in it for a really long time.
0: And it's a huge scale play. You have yeah. to be big. You have to have the content. Yep. You have to have it everywhere all the time.
1: And you got to get the, you got to orient around those hits, which again comes right back to metrics, no metrics, no sense of hits. How do you move the needle like, and get people to go, you know, like everybody points to that house of cards moment. Like they're all like, oh, it's about out of, out of home marketing and all that stuff. And we don't know how it did, but it's a perceived hit. And if full screen or go ninety or any of these guys can somehow back into that, they they can get a perceived hit. But there's either going to have to be some massive water cooler moment where it's just like, is a qualitative understanding of what hit means, or they're going to have to figure out how to start releasing numbers and being like, this was a breakout hit. And I I don't know that yeah, comes. It all comes I, I, I
2: I don't disagree. I think um, if, unless you're Game of Thrones, unless you're Walking Dead, unless you're any of these shows that everyone just knows they're talking about because people are seeing it in their Facebook feed. Like it's a mystery.
1: Yeah.
0: So you also mentioned you're especially passionate about
2: digital rights management. Yeah. What do you see
0: as the challenges for IP and content production today?
1: I think it just ends up being that there's just not really any perfect system and it's going to take a while to get to that. And There's a a really interesting book called The Pirate's Dilemma about like how embracing piracy is a good thing. And I do think there's an element of that. But I think when it comes down to like loss prevention, it kind of sucks for the creators and musicians and kind of managing all that stuff. And I think there's probably a technology out there that could could fix it or there's a way to tag or meta tag and Facebook is going to be trying. But honestly, it's just really low on everyone's priority in terms of the tech stack because they have to move so quickly to stay up to speed with all of the new innovators. But honestly, like all of them know behind the scenes, like Twitter last year at VidCon, not this past one, but they had a speaker on stage who I was talking to behind. And I was like, so what's going to happen when you guys roll out video and you don't have a product that is going to capture? He was like, I want to talk about it? No, nope. they
0: can't. It's all offensive, yeah, right? Like... They have faced so many lawsuits. I'm surprised Facebook hasn't been hit with anything yet, yeah. given the amount of freebooting that happens on the platform. Yeah. And the well, and it's... honestly, the hell, they use safe harbor, and...
2: right? As a provision, they use safe harbor, or they they are their platforms are not like a publisher and so sure, not but but that doesn't mean they're they're immune. Right? Well,
1: they protect. I think they protect the creator. If they're like perpetrating the issue, then, then, but like content ID is sort of like they're getting out of jail free Mm -hmm. card, like, Oh, we put an infrastructure in place. Like I'm assuming that's probably what rights manager is for Facebook, but it's so
0: incredibly lightweight, like on the back end, it's, it's only DMCA takedowns today. It's, it's very manual and tedious. And so the burden ends up falling completely on the creator or on the media company. Right. And there's no onus on the pirates, right? They end up getting away with building a huge audience or making money off this for a long time. Yeah.
1: I, I totally, I just think it's like a huge, a huge problem. And the other thing is, you know, also kind of grabbing snippets in ambient environments is a problem. Like what if I'm doing Snapchat and we've got Rihanna playing in the background, that would never happen in television. Rihanna would go after them in a second, but like the, the internet's so nebulous and then nobody has that kind of fine tuning in, in their process, um, in terms of catching stuff that it's like, can of get away with it. It's actually how Machinima built their entire business was like, Oh, Activision, like, We know where we're like stealing your IP and you know it, that these people are doing it, but like it's promotion and it's it's marketing, marketing. it's like, (laughs) you know, just like, let's look the other way, like ignore, ignore. You can only do that for so long before like rights holders actually really start getting
0: pissed. Mm -hmm. So what's the ultimate solution? Is it technology? Is it legal or policy change? Is it better enforcement from the platforms? What needs to come about to make it a much more fair playing field?
1: I think it's technology. I mean, if they can be listening to us right now from space, like you keep telling me, you can't track like a music <laughs> clip. I don't know. I think it's technology. Sorry, I went to like government conspiracy there for a second. Yeah, no. Back I, on track. I think technology
0: is a big part of it, but there are inherent limitations <laughs> to any digital fingerprinting system, right? They, even Content ID today only captures forty to sixty percent of potential copyright claims, and they're missing so much of it because there are way more people contributing the problem than are contributing the solution.
1: Yeah. But there's also like other technologies like encoding technologies that have meta tagging or not even just fingerprinting. Like fingerprinting basically identifies a match. It doesn't qualify a license. So like a lot of these publishers get hit with that. Like you know, New Form Digital may actually go through the product protocol of licensing a song, but when it hits Content ID, Content ID makes a match. They put it into a bucket. They say, okay, it's flagged. Like now you have to go and actually prove that you have the license. And it makes the process so daunting for the people who are actually trying to play the game right. But there are technologies that actually go the other way, where it's like point of license, we're burning an embedded code onto that track, and if, the, if there's an encoder and a decoder, basically if YouTube had the decoder and then platform A has the encoder and it burns in a, a meta tag onto it, anywhere that that song travels across the internet has that decoder will know that this is a licensed track that has X, Y, and Z digital rights or broadcast or whatever. There are some technologies that do it. Audio Socket does it. There's another one that's like more known for tracking television spots and like TV and broadcast sets, but... It's out there. It's just not implemented on both sides.
0: And it sounds like there are other alternatives too, right? You mentioned embracing piracy and, and some people say the best way to combat it is by offering a free or low cost alternative, right? If you think about what Spotify has done with music, make it cheap and readily available for people to listen to tracks rather than trying to download them. Yeah. Will we see the same thing in video?
1: Tough one. What do you mm-hmm. think? Using the Spotify you you model?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is that what these SsV platforms potentially hope to achieve?
2: That's what I think most of them have, right?
1: Yeah, but then the other thing is, like it all comes back to measurement. I'm sorry to like keep coming back here, but like the reason that that happens is because Rihanna has a hit, or because Rihanna or some, they, they build it off the backs of all those people, right? It's like you go to Spotify because you know all your favorite artists are going to be there, called into one destination. I don't really know why you'd go to full screen right now.
2: I think it comes to quality content. Like Spotify is the single greatest archive of all music. No T Swift though. No T Swift. But you know, speaking from from just a consumer perspective, and and Netflix is kind of that similar model for for video. So you know, we can talk about full screen having Dawson's Creek, and you know, um, what does look-
1: that say about the demographic?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, millennials from the nineties. Now know, we know so what Luke it's, it's a millennial for different uh, demographic, but. You're still, it's not like full screen is just competing against Go90 or competing against Bessel. They're competing against Netflix or competing against Snapchat. And at the end of the day, if you don't have that compelling content that people want to watch, doesn't matter how much you spend against it, doesn't make it quality per se. Totally. So I think that's kind of a conflation that people get sometimes too.
1: Yeah. I, I, I held myself back from writing a really not nice piece about a Maker Studios project that is, I think, it just premiered. I went to their screening. A week, week or two ago, and I was like, "This is just bad." Like, and I'm sitting in the UTA theater, and I'm with a friend who's not in the industry, and I'm seeing all these TV people in in there as well, and like, there were some some like celebrities, and I, I was like, if I was out on the Hollywood side, and I like really had a, like my craft as a writer, or like an actor or whatever, and I'm watching this, like I would be offended that this was greenlit and is having a screening at UTA. And I just thought like, we've got to be better if it's going to be taken seriously. Like we're so past the point where digital and web series should mean, can get by with low quality acting, writing, DP work, editing, green screening, whatever it is, I don't care. I felt the same way. I was actually at the interactive Emmys, like their little private ceremony that they did And again, no offense to Peter and the guys, but I'm looking at the green screening from Epic Rap Battles and I'm thinking like, we're in this theater with all of these people who this is their craft. And like, I get that Epic Rap Battles gets a ton of viewership, you're watching it. And even though the, you know, rapping and all of that is like really well done and it's clearly thought out very well. And it's a very popular show amongst young adults and kids, whatever. I'm like, the quality of this is so bad. And the fact that it's like winning- Because of its numbers and winning like out of that, besides like the craft or the quality of the product, like I feel is embarrassing. I'm like, I'm sitting here going like, I don't know how any of these people, these hundred people on this, you know, interactive media group are sitting here going like, that's our future.
2: Yeah, Got that's stuff. I'm like, tough. hot fire takes everybody. I know. I'm sorry. I, like, <laughs> no, I hope I'm not No, this that no, is good. I think the, uh, like, meanest... we, we don't we don't get a lot of hot fire takes. Or, I don't. Mean, no, <laughs> the ones I've had. I love getting into it. So let's yeah. let's do sorry, some, sorry. some more rapid fire questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: What are some trends that you see as short term fads?
1: Short term fads. Okay, I would definitely think this Espad thing is going to be. Um, I don't think everybody should have a streaming destination. I think it's just sort of sort of like the smart TV app, smart TV app craze which I think is single-handedly cannibalizing the cable business. Like the fact that they even started doing a la carte is like blows my brain like that they would even unbundle anything Mm -hmm. optically.
2: Kind of piggybacking off what you said. I think that after the unbundling trend does its thing, there will be a rebundling by other aggregators who see value and saying, I'm going to take full screen, go 90 and... Spotify, bundle it, call it the Uber package. Bundle the bundles. Bundle the bundles, exactly. Because there's going to be the fragmentation, but after fragmentation, as you know, in in any industry, there's always a congealing or whatever you want to, whatever the term is, people start to come back together because the only way to get true value is by bundling together and giving like a 10, 20% haircut on the pricing. So that's what's going to be really interesting to me is like, okay, once everything has become perfectly fragmented or like it's reached its ultimate fragmentation Who's going to come in. Maybe it's Amazon. Maybe it's an Apple. It says, we're going to scoop up all these channels that would normally cost you a hundred bucks. We're going to price it at so many bucks. And then the S5 players are going to have to sort of buy into it because they're not going to be able to sustain without the distribution power of those, you know, those big tech companies. Eventually those, you know, the Facebooks, the Amazons and Microsofts are going to become the new Comcasts and Time Warner Cables. And I don't know what the other ones, Coxes, yeah. I guess.
1: See, I I had this like moment where I was like, dude, YouTube could have done it
2: done it yeah
1: they just didn't and then now i'm kind of on this team of like watchable and sling kind of like okay i think those guys are the right guys because like there really is no difference like cable box or internet like just flip it over tell people that you'll just uh, offer full screen inside of your Time Warner cable subscription it's just available through your internet instead of through your cable box and I don't know I get hacked for that all the time but cause they're like oh the money's gonna go away and like oh, everything's gonna is like we're gonna hemorrhage all this dollars out of cable and I'm like but it really would be no different like you But I think what it ultimately comes down to is like streaming bandwidth and bandwidth costs on that side are are, there's not like a squishing of the funnel. And so it actually ends up being super expensive in the bandwidth. But I do think if those guys can still house it the same way that the cable companies do now and then just fold all the new stuff
0: under and make
1: it available through the Internet.
0: What advice do you give to digital media and tech startups that you work with, especially if they're starting to just think about getting into marketing and PR?
1: Oh man, I actually was going to go somewhere else in my brain because I was going to say, "Don't do the new fronts." Hot, take, I, hot I fire have take. Hot fire take. <laughs> I have clients for the last few years. I have said to them, actually, don't do the new fronts. Like, do the new front in terms of be there, figure out a way to be on the ground. Like, it's definitely a buyer's market in terms of the people that are there. It's not a buyer's market in terms of really moving the needle. Anybody who makes announcements on stage, they're either bullshit. Or they've been pre-sold. So then why do you need the week? You don't need the week. You've just pre-sold everything. That's sort of what AOL's whole early thing was under Run.
0: And you're splitting the attention with everybody else yeah. over those two weeks.
1: But I think like if you're gonna go and do a presentation, like I I would say this to my clients, like you're gonna spend twenty five thousand dollars to sit on a schedule with no support from IAB, with no like help to do X, Y, and Z. Why don't you take that 25,000 and do it into some other intimate thing where you can do X, Y, and Z 10 times better, right? And you can still use it as a marketing tool. You can still use it to like pump up yourself. But I think if you're using it as an objective to be a marketplace, it doesn't work for that. If you're using it as an objective to kind of have a coming out party, do a coming out party in the week, but you don't need to be there on IAB schedule. And ninety percent of that stuff doesn't get made. I mean, I think we did like a, tr- a cheat sheet from last year that. about like yep. who really made this shit, and I nobody makes any of it. But yeah, I would say that. And then let's see on the PR and marketing,
0: any hacks tips. Tricks of the trade,
1: hacks, tips, ticks. Well, then I wouldn't have to hire
0: me. I don't know if wow. I want
1: to give away. No, Pack I mean, one, hire Jocelyn. <laughs> no, actually, you know what I would say that it's been it become a really um, recent epiphany for me, which actually is almost cannibalizing my own business. If I still had my full time PR business, is um, don't hire an agency, hire in house. Having someone dedicated on your team is going to be better. Having somebody who's dedicated on your team who's passionate about the space and wants to be out networking, kind of like getting a lay of the land and and do their research and be high on intel, that'll be a much better hire for you than uh, hiring an agency that just blasts out press releases. And I see it now on the other side. And I have tried to be the good post-PR person that's like, hey, this isn't quite right. Like, can you send us more of this stuff? And like, they just don't do the work. So I mean, 90% of them, I can ha- count on my hands, the five that I've seen on the PR side through coming through video Inc. that I'm like, okay, this person's good. And I'm helping a couple companies right now hire in heads of PR. And those are the first people I went to. Like you're the, one of the five good people I know that does good PR. And I'm going to try and poach you as an in-house person for company yeah. A, company B.
0: Good people are hard to find anywhere. And I'm sure that holds true in PR it's as true. well. What are some of your favorite books that you've ever read?
1: Comfortable with Uncertainty. But Pima Chodron uh, kind of digests. I don't know if that uh, is what you were looking for. But I like the name. It makes yeah. me
0: think, you know, just instinctively of the startup experience.
1: Yeah, comfortable with uncertainty. Um, it's about like letting go. Let's see. I actually just got through the three laws of performance, and uh, I really like that. Pop quiz. Well, they're actually it's a little bit. They're not actually consolidated into little easy to easy to repeat laws, but one of them that I think is really powerful. In, and especially in a, in a working environment in any company, is that everybody frames their story based on how things occur to them. So the way this is occurring to all three of us right now is very different. And then if you can actually understand that, and it also actually has to do with Pima Chodron's comfortable with uncertainty, because it's like you're kind of coming from a place of empathy in the workplace, empathy and understanding that it's not that everybody's out to slow the ship down or misunderstand X, Y, and Z or not work their hardest. It's maybe just that the way that the situation and the company culture is occurring to them, okay. isn't all unified. And so how can you like, kind of redirect that energy?
0: I like That's that. really cool. Yeah. Bring that over to my company. Yeah. Read it. Oh, it's great. What's coming next. If you had to make three predictions about the online video space, what would they be?
1: I think that a lot of the major players that you saw come into the industry this year in terms of funding and, and kind of financing big, big dollars, We'll tighten that belt. You'll see them doing a lot less spending next year, but you'll see some other idiots come into the space with some heavy pockets. I predict those are going to be more like the music subscription services that exist, like iHeart and uh, maybe Sirius, a few others that are maybe on that kind of similar pathway. I think Live Nation, um, they just presented at the final front, actually, and I was really particularly interested in watching their presentation, which I can't talk about because – I have an agreement with OMG, but I think they're going to do some really interesting stuff in the video space. So
0: perhaps yeah. now after the indie music acquisition as well.
1: Yep. Yep. And definitely, I think that'll be that'll be one of the one of the trends that I would look out for is that some of those guys will start to spend the money that the newer guys aren't and weren't going to. I've been always like even this year, I were coming into this year from middle of last year. I said that I was going to keep my eye on the telcos. I think that's going to be really interesting, but I think now we'll start seeing that on the international side, like who are the international telcos that'll come in? Like, will Rogers make a play? Like, is there going to be more stuff coming from AT&T, Verizon? How are Sprint and T-Mobile going to respond in this space besides free data?
0: Singtel has been making some big at-tech plays over the past few years, probably getting into video in a bigger way soon.
1: Yeah. So I think that's going to be kind of interesting to watch is on like the international telcos and how they respond to kind of observing Verizon's aggressive pushes. And yeah, that'll be interesting to see.
0: Question I want both of your inputs on. What are some companies in the digital video space that you think are prime targets for acquisition? Prime targets for I'll throw out a few while you're thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tastemade, right? I think that's probably obvious where that home is going to be, mm-hmm. but they've raised a lot of money. They've been building a great brand, having a lot of success there. Defy Media raised $70 million, what, just a few weeks ago. I don't think
1: they're going to get acquired the market though like 6 to 9 months ago trying to go for a 300 million dollar valuation if they ended up having to raise 70 million that means that they were not going to get that 300 300 million buyout and it's same thing with studio 71 like the fact that you're that far into your business and still raising that kind of capital i don't know i'll differ with you on that one on Defy. i think they're i think they're struggling it's a good question god who is ripe for acquisition oh it's probably going to come to me after the fact i mean i think whistle sports will get picked up i think they'll probably go to verizon or someone similar mm. Um, Verizon's been seeing, and again, I, I, this is all separately, not because you're sitting here, just because they've consistently made plays in sports, sports is working for go 90 and they have the deal with NFL. They've sort of got some streaming rights for that side of things. Whistle has complimentary sports all across it. So that could be interesting on the same side this just came to me sports side. I'd be interested to see how like Fubo TV is doing with Mm -hmm. their expansion, Someone will probably pick up me too. Sonny will probably pick up me too. But the, the only thing is it'll have to, it would have to be strategic. Not even just like, I mean, like Univision or any of those. I think it'd probably be somebody else who's like. too late like, for
0: Univision. Yeah. They're already competing directly head on with me too.
1: Yeah. Cause of Flama.
0: Yeah. Well, and Univision Creator Network and all oh, their yeah. other acquisitions this yeah. year, they're over capacity on the acquisition yeah. front.
1: I was going to say that I think it's going to be somebody who comes out of left field. Like who else? I mean, it, actually, it could be Verizon because Verizon has also been testing out the Hispanic market pretty pretty aggressively and like seeing some growth in that space. So, like, it could maybe be them because the Hispanic, the millennial Latino and millennial, like, English-speaking US Hispanics. Hispanic, U.S. Hispanic, which is now
0: Me Too's core market. Uh, yeah. it used to be kind more of across in, but, like across the board. They've scaled back and they've faced a lot more competitive pressure in yeah. the past few years.
1: So I think that could be that could be interesting. It'll be whoever's going after the Hispanic media market is going to be like, we need a digital play. We need to be in the his to have this person unlock and we'll go after them.
0: We'll go
2: after Luke, the you need to add to the mix? There's a company called Arsenic TV. Oh yeah, familiar? they're
1: hunting for their acquisition.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I'm not too familiar with them, but I I think they've built such a strong brand. Yeah, I think I like I like Arsenic's brand a lot. There's a lot of companies that I think that the whole multi-platform thing is now, I think, going back to just owning a single platform and just being the shit on there, and then having this room for opportunity to grow. But I think when you expand and you kind of show your ability to perform on all the platforms, and you're never going to perform on all the platforms equally well. So if you just show that I think singular platforming that you can kill it, leave their mystery for the other platforms, and then I think try to capitalize an acquisition with those other platforms to explore. That's a more compelling story than oh shit. Okay, I'm already on all these platforms. I've got a huge Snapchat following, but I'm not that big on Facebook. I'm not that big on Instagram. The areas for growth are just not as compelling. You know, I know Arsenic is right now fairly really big on Snapchat and maybe somewhat of an Instagram Instagram presence, but Other than that, I don't know what else they have. Like for me, that's like more compelling than if they were to have all these social distribution channels. And I have they've reached their peaks on all of them. You know what I mean? So that's Mm -hmm. for me kind of what I see.
1: I kind of um, I would love to hear what you guys think about this one is um, I know we don't want to say companies. We think we're going to that are going to fail out loud. But I would be interested to kind of surface as maybe a questionable category. It's Mm -hmm. like, what do you think happens with all of the measurement? companies. I know I'm keep coming back to that like slate, like tubular, tubular, Open Slate, Epoxy, Zephyr, kind of like all of these guys who are in that lane, like mm-hmm. that have raised so much money that now to acquire them is gonna be high dollar acquisition. Well and who
0: buys them, right? And is then it, who buys them exactly? Is it exactly. Comscore, Nielsen Cantar? Is it Telcom?
2: Is it a Agency holding company? Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I'm less familiar with that space. I mean, I I know the companies, but I don't know kind of what the M&A activity looks like in that Mm -hmm. space. Um, I will say, though, I think whatever ends up happening with Twitter, interestingly enough, may have an impact on that because so many people use Twitter as a measurement tool for audiences now. I think whoever ends up acquiring them will set a model for maybe what those measurement companies, um, whoever becomes those acquirers.
1: Do you think Vice goes IPO or do you think Vice continues to try and get a buyer?
0: I think Vice wants to get bought. I don't see how, I think it, it but I don't know who will
1: buy them at that price tag that they're Mm -hmm. at. No, no way. I
0: mean, if they IPO, it's going to be the same story that happened to, to write Cerebrae
2: Bison, right? Yeah. Yeah. Watching that, that stock slide. It's hard to build that kind of size of a business when you're focused on such a niche audience, which they still are. And it's like $4 billion niche audience, something.
1: Can I just ask you guys both quickly, like what do you what do you guys think the demographic is that is watching Vice?
2: Older than they proclaim. I think it's like us, even though they claim to be. I mean,
1: wait, you calling me old? <laughs> I'm,
2: <laughs> no, like, wait, no, I'm okay. saying us. We are. We. I mean, I'm, I think I'm the same
0: age I as you think are, probably. It's 22 to 44, but they want to be perceived as 18, 35, 16, yeah, 16, 28, yeah, probably.
1: So can I share a story? Yeah, please. Can't tell who the client was. But I was working with a client and they wanted to back into how they had the numbers that Vice was claiming in their demographics. And so we kind of, we used our Google Analytics. We used Comscore. We used kind of every possible way to like back into polling these demographics side by side. ESPN, Vice, Woven, Complex was in there, like a bunch of them. They're all all side by side. And none of them have it they're all of their median ages were like 35 and above like biggest sector like 35 to 50 year old male and they were like running around it's like like i don't know a couple years ago or something and like when vice was at the peak of saying that they had all the millennial men and like this whole thing and i mean even my client like we were all trying to like figure out how we could back into saying that we had that audience and like none of, none of them do none of them have that audience so I just think it's super fascinating that they would go out as far onto their plank as to launch a cable network and then still claim that they have millennial audience. Cause like, I feel like the reason they launched a cable network is because they know that their audience is actually people older, five, right. to, five to 10 years TV minimum TV. older yeah. than we are. <laughs>
0: yeah. So Jocelyn, if you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do?
1: Let's see. Starting a business. Oh, you know what? Oh, maybe I shouldn't tell.
2: Because she's going to do it.
1: Because I I would want to do it. Mine would be sort of a, a hybrid of various models that are out there in a very specific positive life category.
2: I'm I'm not doing it. it. I know it's I'm so like, oh, God. It's fine. I, I want one last hot take. Yeah. Um, what's your hot take <laughs> on? like skip that oh, answer. What's your, <laughs> what's your hot take on uh, VR and AR? And if they're separate hot takes, then you can keep them separate.
1: VR AR. I think AR is gonna probably have its tipping moment here any moment, even though it's been trying for years. Mm-hmm. Sort of like live live video and AR have been the two of like false starts, like trying so hard to take off. VR I debate with a lot of people. Yeah. I have a hard time with it. That seems to
2: be the one that's a lot more controversial.
1: Yeah. I And I have a hard time with it, not because I don't think it will take off in certain environments. Mm-hmm. I think it will definitely take off in, in various like environments about, you know, gaming or travel or like experiential things that you can pop in, pop out. I think narrative is where I kind of mm-hmm. start to not understand. And, and my, my thought process on that is because of focal point. If you're a, you know, horror director or a, Romantic comedy director or writer, it doesn't really matter because you're writing around specific moments in time that you want your audience to look at. And if you're going to have the scary boogeyman jump out at, you know, three minutes and 33 seconds, but you also have to plan for Joe, who's in a VR experience, be having run down to the other side of the woods and not hear it or see it. Like, what what does that do for your storytelling um, capacity? So I just wonder, like, if that's going to be a make or break on the narrative side. But I think all the other experiences will come and go and be fun. I think I think the price point for five people in the home and the disconnection of experience will be tough.
2: Where can people find out more about you and Video Ink?
1: Well, obviously read the site. For those people who embarrassingly don't read us or yeah. subscribe, it's thevideoink.com. To learn more about me, I guess watch D- Digital Cabana. I'm on like Instagram and Facebook for anything that's video- like industry-related. I pu- put it as public on... Uh, on Facebook or put as public on my Instagram. I don't tweet. Hate Twitter, actually. Why is that? Just never got into it. I don't know. I miss the culture. Maybe I don't know. I I'm the same way. And I think there it. were
0: some statistics like a few years ago that less than 7% of Americans actively you know, have a Twitter. i Twitter that much. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: I don't snap. Sorry, guys. Probably it.
0: Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so Thank much you. for giving us the inside scoop and getting the chance to learn a little bit more about your background mm-hmm. and. Lots of hot takes, as Luke said. So it's cool to get some of the, the true insights and analysis on what's going well, what's you know maybe not as exciting as some people claim it to be, and just a lot of fun. So thank yeah, you, Kesslyn. Yeah,
1: for sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.